Navigating the Datascape with Chris Presley and special guests. Welcome to episode 47 of the Datascape podcast. I'm your host, Chris Presley. In this episode, we're going to recap the latest cloud updates since our last mass cloud update podcast. Since we recently recapped AWS's reInvent with Apoorva, we'll be focusing on GCP and Azure updates this time around. Coming up in the next few weeks, we'll also recap the spring Microsoft Ignite conference, and we'll start talking a little bit about the finances behind cloud and cloud adoption during the pandemic. So lots of great shows coming up. Back to today's show, we're welcoming Pirig Lasso back, who will be discussing the latest GCP updates. Hey, Pirig, welcome back. Hi, Chris. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, this week I'll be talking about GCP. Awesome. And never a complete show if we're talking Microsoft, Warner Chavez rejoining us. Hey, Warner, how's it going? Good. How are you guys? I'm very happy to be back here today. And the cloud never sleeps, people. So let's see what's <laughs> been going on. Right on. Okay, so today I think we'll start with some GCP updates along the, specifically in infrastructure. So Pirig, why don't you talk to us about the latest service directory update? Right. There is a new service that was implemented by Google, which is a service uh, discovery endpoint. So if you are familiar with uh, products like Zookeeper or Console or etcd, this is what it's like. It's Google's implementation of this. So Google provides us with a REST API uh, to store service metadata of some sorts. And the idea is for you to facilitate orchestration of microservices in regards to load balancing and microservices intercommunication communications. And so it makes all of that easy. It comes with, a, as I said, a REST API endpoint. So you can just HTTP post and get as you would usually do. And there are also some client libraries provided in uh, Python and Java, which uh, make your code, simplify your code quite a bit. So yeah, this is a great feature that was added. And it should be noted that load balancers now have integrated support for this. So they are able to read information out of the service discovery to configure backends automatically for you. So yeah, a great new service. That sounds interesting. Warner, let's talk about the new Azure Advisor scoring service. Yeah, so this is an improvement over the existent Azure Advisor service. So to those people that are not familiar, the Azure Advisor is Microsoft service that looks at how you're setting up, how you are configuring the resources and the security and the resource management of your cloud subscription. And then it gives you different type of advice, right? So for example, if you have a VM that's on 24-7, but it's almost never using resources, then Azure Advisor gives you that type of recommendation that says, hey, maybe this VM doesn't need to be on 24-7 kind of thing, right? And these types of recommendations are split between cost, security, reliability, uh, operational excellence, performance, and Microsoft keeps adding more and more categories over time. The cool thing about this, of course, is that this Azure, the advisor score is basically a way for you to measure in a holistic way how well you are doing against all these different recommendations, right? So then the score, this is basically a centralized dashboard where you can look at all these different dimensions of your subscription with the recommendations that go on it. So then you can assess if your cloud subscription is configured in the way that Microsoft recommends, if you're taking advantage of the cost savings that are up to it. So you can do some optimization and you can report on it, obviously, right? And the cool thing about it is that 
because the score is an actual measurement, then you can also trend it and track it over time and be able to provide some KPIs around it, right? To say, look, Azure Advisor score started at number X. And now three months later, after we've been doing some cost optimization and some better practices reconfigs, now our Azure score is up to, you know, X plus 20%, whatever the number might be, right? So it gives us something to trend and track over time to measure how well we are configuring and managing our cloud subscription. I think that's a great idea, especially if as part of the report, you know, you also get like direct links to the parts in the portal where you can take action or better yet, click approve and it just makes the change for you. The prescriptive, just click here and we'll fix it for you. That's not built in at the moment, but at least it gives you a list of things that you should be working on. This is an area that's pretty hot right now. There's a lot of startups as well that are working on this to try to create products that will look at your cloud environment and will give you recommendations and cost optimization and all this stuff. So this is an area that I think is going to be pretty hot for the next couple of years. Yeah, Potentially a great way to drive consulting engagements, right? Now, our score is not very good. Let's see what we can <laughs> yeah, exactly. Absolutely. Well, better yet, yeah. I mean, what would you know? many companies pay to be listed as contact your possible trusted advisor and then you know list Pythian or some company that can help you. There's definitely, I'm seeing strong market interest as well in everything above the management of cloud, specifically around the finances. And that's why we're going to be doing some episodes about it as well, because uh, it's changing for us in IT. And on the topic of billing, Pirig, why don't you talk about the GCP cloud billing change? Oh, right. So this is just a small addition to cloud billing, but I thought it was interesting. They just added support for PayPal. It might be easier for some companies who don't distribute credit cards to to employees, but maybe like, you know, distribute a central PayPal account for them to do office expenses. And so this is probably a good way to get those companies to start using Google Cloud. So, yeah, I thought it was a nice addition worth mentioning. Yeah, I think so. Let's stick with you and talk about the US-Europe cable, which is super interesting. So this is a new cable that has been pulled between the US and Europe. So I believe between France and I forget which region on the US side. But anyways, it's super high throughput cables that we've almost never seen before. It's 250 terabytes a second. So it is insanely fast. And so that will allow, obviously, it will be added to Google's backbone of service. And, you know, Google Cloud will definitely benefit of this. It'll be used for other things than just Google Cloud, but it's definitely a great intercontinental addition. Hopes of a lowering latency uh, between Europe and US going through this cable. Yeah, I think it's really interesting. I know it's just a cable in the sea, you know, connecting, but if you think about the distance and the security concerns and preserving it, and it's super interesting. On the topic of physical changes, Warner, let's talk about the Azure Modular Data Center. Yeah, this is this is a pretty cool one. It's part of Microsoft's hybrid strategy that obviously we've talked about before in the podcast about Azure Stack Appliances, for example, right? Or the Azure Stack Hub devices, the rugged devices that you can bring in, you know, throw it in a laptop kind of thing. So this is the modular data center is basically a portable Azure data center in a 40-foot container that is meant to be used for either defense or emergency type of situations like rescues or, you know, flood or something where you still need really robust compute power and storage power. But obviously you're not going to, you know, suddenly 
set up a physical data center that easily, right? As opposed to this is provided in a 40 foot container that you can move in with regular transportation. And it's, you know, you can outfit it with a different configuration of racks. You can have a physical connectivity. You can have satellite connectivity on it. It's got redundant power. It's obviously has its own temperature regulation inside the container. It works in disconnected mode. And then eventually, if you want to connect it back into the internet to be able to connect to Azure, then you can obviously just back up whatever it is that you did while it was disconnected. I have no idea how much one of these goes for or if they rent them or something because Microsoft announcement doesn't go into pricing at all. But I, I still thought it was pretty neat just how, you know, they think of these different type of deployment models that at the same time, right, it's not like they're selling you a container with just a bunch of Windows servers. I, I think that's also the kind of like the key piece, right, is that using the investments that they've done in the Azure stack, they just give you this different physical setup, right? But the bits inside, are still the bits that maintain Azure compatibility. So that is easy to, again, come back to the cloud once you're in a fully connected mode, right? Right. That's pretty cool. A uh, generator and a couple of Starlink dishes, and you've got a mobile mm -hmm. data center. <laughs> yeah, you read my mind. In the update, I think they were originally envisioning a military application, but the point is the cost would be exorbitant today, but two years from now, five years from now, the capabilities will be incredible and the cost will be a fraction of what they are. So the next hurricane or, or natural disaster, and then combine this with, say, Starlink, as Pyrrhic said, you've got full, awesome computing capability dropped right where you want it. How long yeah, can you parachute it, right? Yeah, and the key also is that it's not just the appliance, right? Because the appliance was already sold, right? The stack right. hub, you could put it, because we've talked about that, like you and I have talked about, for example, like remote drilling operations and stuff like that. But there, you already have the room set up. You would just bring in the appliance and, and hook it up, right? This is where literally you can put it outdoors. You just <laughs> drop, yeah. drop in the container, right? And the container has its own redundant power, it has its own temperature regulation, et cetera, et cetera, right? Just think of also moving it around. I know we're using a lot of flash storage, but just think about moving a container on the back of a transport truck and the jiggling and jostling of the equipment. Like, yeah, even that yeah. has to be thought about, you know? Yeah, yeah I'm pretty sure the, the insights, there's no pictures of the insights, but the, I of course yeah, guaranteed, guaranteed they must have thought about that. Yeah. yeah, dampening of some sort. Sticking with Azure and cool physical things, why don't you talk about Azure Orbital? So Azure Orbital, yeah, I guess it's in kind of in the same vein of, you know, how many things can we, physical things, can we replace with software, right? So Azure Orbital is a satellite ground station as a service, right? So Microsoft has its own satellite dishes. And then instead of having to have a ground station, if you just part use one of the services with one of their partners that's already operating satellites, you just sign up for Azure Orbital and you basically have a, a ground station, obviously deployed completely through software and integrated with Azure, right? So this opens scenarios as you can do Earth observation. If you sign up for something that you're interested in, then once it's in Azure, you can apply whatever you want to it, to the images. You can do ML on them, or you can do some AI on them. Maybe you're doing some sort of custom mapping, et cetera, et cetera. You can use it for global communications as well. So 
some of the things they mentioned could be in-flight connectivity, maritime connectivity, cruises, video broadcasting, a lot of stuff like that, right? And again, it's just you don't have to deploy anything physical. You don't have to rent some physical space on a ground station or anything like that. It's all, you know, as a service provided as software. Microsoft is the one that's actually partnering or building their own ground stations. At this point, they probably have their own ground stations. I wouldn't be surprised. But yeah, anyway, it's, it's one of those things, again, where we see if it can be turned into software, it will be turned into software. Pretty hard to compete with that with Peering, but why don't you talk about uh, Cloud Composer? <laughs> yeah, so this is not going to be as cool as that. But I thought it was important because of Cloud Composer is a product I use a lot. And well, I did have some issues in the past with it during upgrades. So I noticed this one. So Cloud Composer is Google's version of implementation of Airflow. So Airflow is your typical ETL orchestrator. So when I build data lakes for customers, it's probably one of the core tools to orchestrate all the different pipelines to ingest data and stuff. If you manage your own Airflow cluster, it's not that easy to upgrade. There are a lot of steps. There are a lot of things to do. Um, you've got to upgrade several Docker images, but more importantly, you've got to often, not necessarily all the time, there would be some database upgrades to be done. That database is hosted on Google's end. So this is abstracted from you, but Previously, during upgrades, we could see some difficulty upgrading. If the database was quite big, the timeouts were just too short for the upgrade to complete successfully. Those sort of things. So they've improved the database upgrade quite a bit and the whole process of retrying and, and failures during the upgrades. And so the last test that I've made, my upgrades actually went smoothly and I hadn't seen that in a long time. So that was a good new upgrade for me, a good feature. Yeah. Warner, coming back to you, do you want to talk about Redis Enterprise? Yes. So Redis Enterprise is the newest version of Redis that is available in Azure. Azure has had a managed Redis for a long time, by the way. So to people to make it really clear about the history of this. But this new Redis Enterprise has been developed in direct partnership with Redis Labs to bring it to Azure and optimize it for Azure. So it goes beyond the initial offering that Microsoft had, which was basically, you know, we have the open source Redis and Microsoft built it into a managed services, right? So now we're coming in with this new version that's officially partnered with Redis Labs to bring in their latest goodies of the Redis software and deploy it as a managed service inside Azure as well. And they're coming with separate different tiers as well. So you can have it on regular storage. You can have it on flash storage if you want as well. You have zone redundant replication because for those that are not familiar with it, Microsoft has been adding a lot of redundant zones to many of its regions around the world. So for a long time, Microsoft had more regions around the world than AWS, for example, but AWS usually had at least three availability zones on each one of those regions, right? Whereas Azure had some regions only had one zone. So that's been corrected for a long time by Microsoft. And now we're seeing a lot of, or if not almost all of the services have zone redundant availability, right? So this Redis Enterprise now has zone redundant replication. It has the capability to have caches on NVMe flash storage to make it really fast and have two levels of cache, right? Like main memory and the NVMe as well. New types of enterprise modules developed by Redis Labs. For example, a rich search 
on the cache components, the Bloom filters on searching on the cache components, ability to even do time series data on cache data. And it has also private link network isolation. So this was something else that is a big requirement nowadays on, on a lot of companies that are looking for full network isolation for the services they deploy and they don't want any sort of internet facing endpoints. So we see this coming up a lot now. A lot of services are offering private links and this one is offering private links now as well. And of course, because it's also just natively supported by Azure now, then it has first party support for setting up through the Azure portal, full integration with the Azure AD security, with the Azure monitoring and logging, and also integrated with the, the Azure billing and any sort of quotas and cost measure controls that you have set up on your Azure subscription as well. And Perry, coming back to you for Secret Manager. Right. So Secret Manager is a GCP product where you securely store passwords and you get your applications pull secrets of any type, such as passwords, out of it securely. And so I found this interesting because Google added automatic expiration of some of these secrets. And I see this as being the first step in implementing auto-rotation of passwords. So I'm expecting that we will soon reach a point where we won't even know longer know the password that's stored in Secret Manager. It'll automatically be updated, be updated in your application with a code snippet that you could run in a cloud function. So a good way of, I think, of automating password rotation. That's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Passwords and security is a topic we obviously need to keep talking about, but in many cases, passwords as a securing method don't work very well in my mind and don't work well for consumers either or IT. So I've read about some really fascinating strategies about not having passwords and in relation to certificates and password managers and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. So yeah. really great. It, not as sexy sounding as you know a data center in a box or, or satellites, but very, very important as we read about all of the security breaches that are happening too often. So Warner, coming back to you, let's talk about the Azure hybrid benefit for Linux. Yeah, so just to give a quick intro on the concept of Azure hybrid benefits. So the Azure hybrid benefit are these basically usage benefits that Microsoft gives to people that already had pre-existing licenses for a software, right? So obviously the first thing that comes to mind is customers of Microsoft that were heavily invested in Microsoft technology on-premises that had Windows Server licenses or that had SQL Server licenses, right? And then Microsoft created the Azure Hybrid Benefit to basically say, look, if you bring, even though you already paid for this license for us, but if you say that you're going to migrate this, let's use Windows Server as an example, you migrate your Windows Server to Azure, then we'll discount this Windows Server pay as you go heavily over, let's say, the next two or three years, right? And you get a really good discount in the licensing to basically recognize that you already paid for that, right? So the cool thing about this is that this Azure Hybrid benefit is coming now for Linux as well for the customers that were actually running Red Hat Enterprise or Suzy Linux Enterprise as well. So Microsoft obviously has done a partnership here with Red Hat and the Suzy Enterprise as server devs to be able to probably split in some way the cost of the licensing, right? To make it as an incentive for these people to choose Azure as their go-to Linux cloud 
data center, right? So I thought that's pretty interesting as well because the obvious choice is that obviously Microsoft is going to do this for Microsoft software, but you know through their own secondary deals, they can actually expand this benefit to other companies that we would have not thought about before, right? So this is just starting here with Red Hat and Suzy, but who knows? We might see other types of deals down the line. Maybe it will be an Azure hybrid benefit for SAP, right? Coming down, something like that. It basically opens up for Azure hybrid benefits with all sorts of third parties, as long as Microsoft can find some agreement to it. And keep in mind also, interestingly, Red Hat is now owned by IBM, which technically is still in the cloud game, right? But here they are still offering the Azure hybrid benefit, right? So it's an interesting situation as well as we see how these cloud players develop. Somebody must have crunched some numbers and said, well, it makes more sense to at least get some money back from Microsoft for this hybrid benefit than try to force Red Hat customers to use the IBM cloud because probably the, that's, that wouldn't happen anyway, right? Yeah, that's, that's probably a tough road to hoe. Let's come back to you, Peric, and let's talk about some of the new features in BQ's new UI. Yes, so BQ is provided with a new UI that's currently in testing. Um, it's not GA yet, but usually you can just enable it by the click of a button in your interface. So yeah, I mean, Google did some a pretty good job here. They were bringing pretty much a SQL IDE to the browser. That's very cool. So it's a new layout of the BigQuery interface. On the left-hand side, the panel where you would see, you now have a section that's called SQL Workplace, which opens your query editor. And then you see the other uh, BigQuery services, such as data transfer, query history, job history, et cetera. And you can now fold that down to make your screen a lot bigger. And you get the new user interface to run SQL queries. So you get a lot of new features. So you get tabs. You can now have several tabs, not browser tabs, but tabs in the IDE itself. So you can have multiple queries. You can compare tabs. You can have two tabs side by side to compare queries. You can also save tabs to recover them later. So when you close your browser, you open it back and you can restore your tabs. There is now IntelliSense, I believe, as auto-completion for SQL. So basically you start typing the name of a data set, the name of a table, it auto-completes for you. Functions also auto-complete for you for like, I don't know, a timestamp conversion or whatever, it auto-completes. So that's very cool stuff. So yeah, I think it's pretty cool. The downside I found is that on a 13 inch laptop, it's a bit small, but on a decent sized monitor, it's actually completely usable and it's very good. Yeah, I thought that was a pretty decent advancement as well. And, you know, I hate to age myself and sound like an old guy, but, you know, so many people aren't going to have queried sys tables, have the results of sys tables in their result window while they're, you know, banging out SQL code in the right. main window. All right. Speaking of things that are in GA, Warner, Synapse Analytics has gone GA. That's right. So this is an update. It's because we haven't done this cloud update in a couple of months. So this this actually happened about, I think, maybe about two to three months ago that Synapse went GA. Microsoft did a big event, a virtual, of course, but it was a pretty big event. They had the CEO of Starbucks on it, the CEO of Glasso, SmithKline as well on it. Talk about, you know, how they're using Synapse and Azure in general. CEO of Starbucks talked about, for example, about they have like their connected espresso machines now that send their diagnostics. 
every day so they can do preventive maintenance on all the coffee machines and stuff like that. The GlaxoSmithKline CEO also mentioned, you know, of course, like there's so much data that gets produced for, right. you know, healthcare and drug development in general and the crazy year that all these drug companies have had to anyway with COVID. So Synapse is now generally available. It's offered, I think it's offered in, in all the main regions at this point as well. Canada wasn't there for the preview for a long time because now that it's GA, it's, it's here in Canada too. Everything is there in terms of the big data, the SQL engine, the serverless engine. There's very little that's still in preview, just a little bit of the data flows, which are basically graphic transformation tools. Those, the, the wrangling data flows are still in a preview. So part of it, just that small part is still considered preview. The all the main functionality is now generally available. Interesting to Pierre's point, of course, is that now we're going to see this with some of the other competitors, right? As everybody, every time that one of these cloud providers comes up with one good idea, all the others, they got to play you know, the same game. My guess is that we're going to see Redshift come up with a fancy new GUI very soon in the next couple of months. So I think it's the one that really pops out still is really lagging behind. Synapse obviously has like everything in it and Microsoft really threw a lot of polish around it. BigQuery now coming out with the same idea of the workspace. Snowflake was already there. Databricks actually just did a big investment in a company called Rehash that creates a very rich notebooks so that they can have the same type of interactive, uh, auto-completed, visual style drag and drop notebooks as well inside Databricks. So really Amazon is the only one that's kind of like dragging their feet on this topic for some reason, but they're not going to have much of a choice nowadays. And interesting, I saw the other day too, a lot of people, I forget where I saw it, but somebody was talking about how they ran some surveying on the data warehouse that people were deploying mostly in Amazon. And there more and more people are rather deploying Snowflake than Redshift in AWS as well, which I think is really interesting. And obviously, AWS was the first cloud that Snowflake supported. So a lot of the Snowflake features, I mean, everything works in AWS for Snowflake, right? There's no feature of Snowflake that doesn't work in AWS because it was the first one, right? And so I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, if AWS doesn't start spending some more money on Redshift, Snowflake is going to keep eating away at that particular service. Yeah, it is. It'll be interesting to see how this competition you know, goes. And listeners, if you're newer to the show, we did have Snowflake's chief technology evangelist on a previous show. Don't have it in front of me, but I want to say it was like episode 44 or something in there. Definitely worth checking out if you're interested in Snowflake. Also, shameless promotion, Warner Chavez released two Snowflake courses on Pluralsight, and I've taken the first one. I'm looking forward to the second one. It's really good learning if you're interested in the topic. Coming back to Pirig, let's talk about the new data lineage system for BigQuery. I found that was a really interesting blog post by Google because data lineage is a difficult problem to solve currently and, and lots of customers are asking for it. What they're looking to solve with data lineage in general is to identify the impact and dependency analysis of changes in their data lakes, right? So what happens if I add this new column at this table that I have upstream? How is that going to impact downstream? What is it going to change? That's definitely something that customers are looking for. Then you have data leakage, exfiltration, right? So is this data wrongly going with this service account to this wrong data set? That kind of thing. Debugging 
data correctness, data quality as well as part of, of lineage. And overall, just validating your data pipelines that they are doing what they're, what you ex expected them to do, what you described to the developer to build. And finally, we're seeing a little more as being uh, lineage is used by data scientists who try to create some ML workflows with a data out of the data lake. So it, this is very difficult to do because nowadays to do efficient lineage, the only solution that I've seen right now is to do it actively, to take care of it in your code. So when you're writing data flow jobs or Hadoop jobs or whatever, you would be populating metadata that describes your lineage and you would be using that to analyze your flows. But this is a passive means of doing it. So it's kind of after the fact. So they're bringing in some pretty interesting tools to be able to do that. And so what they do is we basically create an infrastructure where we're going to go and inspect schemas upstream. We're going to use a grammar engine, Zeta SQL, to understand what exactly is happening with those tables. And from there, we're going to be able to populate the lineage describing those interesting topics I just talked about. So you will see your impact dependency analysis, data leakage exfiltration, data correctness, quality, and overall validation. I have not tried this out for myself. And so some of these areas are a bit still obscure to me, but I'm sure it'll be all clarified when I finally put my hands on it, expecting to do that in the next two weeks. But the technologies around this are they use BigQuery audit logs. They ingest that into PubSub, and then you read those logs with a data flow pipeline, and you analyze that data with the Zeta SQL Grammar Engine. And finally, you tag the data and data catalog. So it's a pretty cool pipeline. It uses a lot of different technologies. Definitely could be adapted. It's basically just, you know, it's not a GCP service as is, right? It's a sample code examples for you to build an equivalent product. It'll be very interesting to, for me to put my hands on that and figure it out. Yeah, I was reading about it, preparing for the show and agreed. I think that's really interesting and really great because if you don't understand the lineage of the data, you can make some very big mistakes and very public in your workplace if you're not careful and thorough. So I think it's great. And it's it's rare that you find, and you need, we need good tools for this because it's really rare to, that you find the organization that wants to invest in the proper documentation and or the employees that want to do it. I can think of my least favorite things and writing documentation is among them, at least to work. Data governance is a hot topic for cloud providers nowadays. And interestingly, now just like how Pierre was mentioning this new Google BigQuery capability is that if you are familiar at all with this market of the data governance tools, you know it's a market that is like ripe for disruption. These tools are ridiculously expensive with a capital R, right? For a million oh, yeah. years, these companies have had massive margins where if you talk about how what's the cost of deploying a data governance tool on-prem, you're talking about, oh, yeah, we'll start at like the high six figures, right? This is a market that once it's taken to the cloud, Google, Microsoft, AWS, et cetera, will be able to give you similar or equivalent capabilities at a easily, I would expect to be able to do it at like 15, 
20% of the cost or even less, maybe gen one will be 15, 20%. Eventually they'll, you know, bring it down to like, you'll be able to do it at like a few hundred bucks a month of consume and just have like a, you know, permanent crawling service, looking at all the movement and figuring out the lineage information, et cetera, et cetera. But it's, it's definitely, like I said, for many years, the pricing of those tools has been just outlandish and it's, it's time for those companies to either innovate or start to open it up because it's a huge barrier of entry for a lot of companies, right? They look at data quality tools, data cataloging tools, data governance tools, and they just can't even afford them. I think it's great that the cloud is starting to disrupt that market as well. Yeah, I, I was actually, I actually got to see a couple of official data governance tools sold by, by third parties. And until now, I've been actually pretty disappointed by what I've seen. I've found that they were mostly glorified documentation hubs rather than seeing actual intelligence of being very little automation yeah yeah it's like a nice tool for you to just fill up information over and over and tag stuff yourself over and over yeah there's no intelligence of like going in and inspect code to understand lineage or at least source and destination tables to maybe guess what was going on none of that right so i I was a bit surprised i'm happy to see something like this a bit more scientific at play yeah, agreed. So let's stick with you, Pirig, and let's talk about, let's keep the, the topic going with real-time data integration and BigQuery. Yes. So uh, this is a, an interesting functionality to cloud data fusion that has been added recently. So you are now able to replicate in real time some databases, specifically SQL Server and MySQL, directly into BigQuery. And so this is a CDC, so Change Data Capture Tool. So basically what it does, it reads audit logs on your source database and replace them in BigQuery. So now you're going to tell me, oh, but wait, MySQL binary logs and MS SQL logs aren't compatible. They're, you know, they're not in the same format. So how does this work? Well, that's the little trick is you actually need to use a third-party tool called Debezium, which is a change provider for various databases. And it currently works with SQL Server and MySQL and more coming soon. So you install Debezium on your source databases. You point your cloud data fusion to read those audit logs and data fusion writes the updates in BigQuery for you. So very cool real-time job that is actually accessible by more people than other tools because cloud data fusion is a GUI-driven interface and it's quite easy to point and click and set up new pipelines. So you basically point, uh, you create a new box, you say, this is my source data on MS SQL, I'm writing it to this table. So it's really easy to organize. It's meant for not necessarily data engineers, but data users. It brings this functionality to basic users. Out of that, I could imagine some people People, uh, you know, getting the idea out of cloud data fusion, uh, some more advanced developers and integrating that into more performant codes, such as Dataflow, for example. Yeah, my team and I, and Peric knows this because he's on my team, but my team and I are watching Cloud Data Fusion fairly closely and quite excited about it as it advances and kind of gets ready to compete with some of the other GUI-driven tools like Azure's Data Factory 2 and whatnot. I think can't wait to see as the, uh, this mature. Coming back to you, Warner, looks like Microsoft was named a leader in Gartner's 2020 Magic Quadrant for cloud database management systems. Why don't you tell us more? Yeah, well, I wanted to take the opportunity so we could discuss the latest magic quadrant for cloud data management systems since it's, you know, this is the Dioscape and this is the cloud update. It's like the perfect scenario to talk about this. So I'm just, uh, to the listeners, I'm just going to give you the rundown of what I find interesting about this latest magic quadrant. It was 
published in December, so it's got it's a three month old. For the most part, Gartner just does these once a year for each one of the categories. There's usually cloud data management systems. There's business intelligence. There's also the analytics magic quadrants. So there's three or four pertaining to data magic quadrants. For this cloud database management systems quadrant, the leader in terms of ability to execute overall is AWS, then followed by Microsoft, then we have Google, then we have Oracle, and then it just kind of drops off after that. There's a big gap there between those first four and the rest. However, there's some interesting things to note in the magic and this magic quadrant this year. Snowflake has moved into the challengers quadrant. Databricks has moved into the visionaries quadrant as well. On the flip side, we see Cloudera basically stuck where it's been in between the bottom two quadrants for a very long time. I think at this point, Databricks has kind of eaten Cloudera's lunch and Cloudera seems to be just just stuck, whereas Databricks seems to be gaining more and more mind share and market share. And keep in mind, Databricks also will be, I think Databricks will be IPOing this year as well. That'll be interesting to see how the capital markets receive Databricks as a company too. So some incumbents here, very, very interesting to see how that goes. Heradata is still considered a leader in the magic quadrant, which I find interesting. I know there is a Teradata cloud now as well. However, just on my anecdotal experience, I haven't found anybody particularly interested in adopting the Teradata cloud, whereas I have found multiple people particularly interested in migrating off of their Teradata on-prem to any of the other solutions that I just mentioned, whether it's AWS, Microsoft, Google, Snowflake, or Databricks. So interesting yeah, but, quadrant. We'll see how it develops in this year. Yeah, super interesting. Thanks for bringing that one up. Let's wrap the Azure data updates with your Confluent and Azure update. Yeah, so this is a small update. It's Confluent. If you're not familiar with it, Confluent, they are one of the biggest contributors to Kafka. And they also run their own service known as the Confluent Cloud. So you can have your own Kafka as a service running in the cloud as well. So this is an official, let's say, a partnership or support of Azure and the Confluent Cloud. And you have it available now through the Azure Marketplace. And it's all deployed inside Azure so that, you know, again, you're not leaving that boundary. If you have, you know, a geolocation requirements, et cetera, et cetera, it's still hosted inside Azure. So it combines the reachability of Azure, the security, the compliance with also uh, Confluence managed Kafka capabilities, right? So it's still hosted inside your subscription, inside your Azure region as well. And then the Confluent Cloud product itself, their version of Kafka, has fully managed connectors that you can deploy for Azure Functions, Blob Storage, Event Hubs, Data Lake, even SQL Server if you wanted to, or Azure SQL DB to consume events from Kafka as well. So just another piece here so that instead of, you know, you having to run your own Kafka cluster, for example, you can look now at a natively managed option of just running Confluence Kafka offering instead, right? So very interesting, especially for system architects. They're probably going to start looking at this option now instead of having to roll your own 
Kafka cluster, for example. Right. right. Yeah. And we've seen people get in trouble with their Kafka clusters and rescued a few. On the topic of Kafka and Google PubSub, Pierre, this one would sound kind of interesting. Yeah. So Warner, you're not going to like this one. So this is a new service by Google. It's uh, PubSub Lite, and it's specifically meant for Kafka users. So here, basically, Google released a new service that is very similar to PubSub, but actually a little more similar to Kafka. So what you can do is continue using your existing Kafka client libraries for the most part, and you can benefit from these new PubSub Lite topics on GCP. So you don't get the full Kafka functionalities. So you cannot run SQL queries on topics. Uh, so you don't get those more advanced functionalities that you have in Confluent, but you get the message ordering that you don't have in PubSub. You set up your cluster from the start, knowing its scale. It's not a service that is going to auto scale for you. So you still have to manage your partitions. You don't manage your partitions, but you decide how many partitions you're gonna have, which defines the performance of your Kafka cluster and its size. And this one is not an international service, whereas you know in PubSub, you can insert a message and then you can pick it out of any other region in the world. It transits on Google's backbones. This one is gonna be limited to a specific region. And so the cost is a bit less expensive than a fully fledged PubSub topic. So definitely a very interesting alternative for Kafka users here. Yeah, message queuing is is super fun. I've done some, a long time ago, did a bunch of work between the AS400 and SQL Server with IBM's message queuing. It was super fun. I thought that was interesting. Let's stick with you, Pirig, and let's talk about Cloud SQL Insights. So Cloud SQL Insights is a new troubleshooting tool that was added to Cloud SQL. So you basically get a new panel, uh, you need to enable the API, and then you get a nice graphical interface that references your slow queries. So you can investigate, sort by where they are coming from, what application they are going from, what databases, etc. And you can easily explain the troublesome queries in that interface. It develops in a nice graph and shows you, you know, the bottleneck of that query so that you can do something about it and try to fix it. May that be by, you know, fixing an index or improving on the query. But yeah, a very uh, useful tool uh, for troubleshooting. You don't have to, you know, your MySQL command line to sort your long queries anymore. That's not graphically driven and, and really nice interface uh, with metrics that you can keep over time. Okay. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Well, that trending over time is super handy as well. And Warner, coming over to use that looks like there were some new video analytics capabilities from Azure. Yeah. So this is part of Azure's cognitive services. There's a couple of new video analytics features that I thought would be interesting for us to discuss. The first one is that there is now a cognitive service that can do live spatial analysis, which obviously nowadays with the whole thing of uh, the pandemic, there is now an interest in a lot of businesses in controlling how people are moving through a space in real time to be able to, you know, either tell people to move farther apart or to stay in a particular zone or to count how many people are inside a particular area, et cetera, et cetera. So you can have this live video spatial analytics module that is capturing video from a real-time stream, for example, and then do things like, you know, count how many people are in a particular zone within the camera's uh, field of view, see if a person crosses a particular line or a particular area, or if multiple people violate a distancing rule or too many people grouped into a particular area as well, right? And 
this, uh, like I said, is just very pertinent for what we're living through right now, right? Makes kind of sense. And then the other thing that was also provided is that you can bring not only Microsoft is providing, this is a module that is created by Microsoft, the spatial analysis module. So you just have to consume it and set it up. But you can also bring custom vision models into live video analytics as well. So this opens this scenario where anytime that you want to do some live video analytics and you have a, a custom use case for it, then you can just leverage the cognitive services, APIs and infrastructure to do your custom real-time video analytics, right? So some of the use cases for now as well could be for safety and compliance to make sure that everybody's wearing like hard hats or their vests, et cetera, et cetera to do inspections in factories on conveyor belts, right? Like products moving rapidly through a belt that get analyzed through a real-time video feed to detect the presence of unwanted objects on a particular area, for example, right? For in terms of security, you could even do like, you know, facial recognition and then figure out in real time particular identities of people that are in an area that they might or might not are supposed to be in. You could even do it in a retail scenario or in a warehouse scenario where just physically you can start to detect through the images whether your stock levels are appropriate or whether you know particular products are, are blocking other products in a retail display, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And this is all built into, like I said, you just have to reutilize that cognitive services infrastructure with your custom service model. And Cognitive Services, by the way, also offers the API and the documentation and the samples into how to create a compatible custom vision model. So, you know, you just have to follow, you can follow the entire framework to deliver a solution like this. Yeah, and we talk a lot about the cognitive AI offerings from the three major cloud vendors, and I continue to be very torn, very excited by numerous business and safety applications, like you mentioned. Like, you can see an obvious, you know, the examples that you gave were excellent, but also, you know, in policing, deploy drones if they're searching for someone in a neighborhood, deploying drones and knowing that there's someone on a roof on the other side, you know, very safe yeah. for police. I mean, that was, that was back in RoboCop. Mm -hmm. Right. Oh, I, I never now, watched. Now it. we can actually. Now we can actually do it. But right, like, yeah, all, all so these like eighties, all these eighties dystopian future stories <laughs> had this type of stuff, right? Yeah. No, yeah. now it's reality. Yeah. Good point. And I mean, so I love anything that's going to save lives and make things safer for first responders or anyone that's doing that sort of work. But at the same time, it's super creepy as a, a privacy advocate. And so you know, a balance of privacy versus safety is important and important to watch the ethics behind this. So coming back to you, Pirig, it looks like there were a couple of cloud build updates you wanted to discuss. Yeah, definitely not as sexy, but cloud build got some two semi-important updates uh, recently. I hadn't seen that many updates in a while, so it makes me think that maybe they're looking at Cloud Build and maybe are going to work on it a bit more. So I found that interesting. So Cloud Build is basically a very simple Jenkins CI/CD pipeline thing. Right. It connects to your source control repositories and on actions like a push, a merge or a pull request or whatever, it execute actions and can start building stuff. For example, I don't know, I have my Java code, my Java data flow code that I'm committing when I commit and I make my PR to be merged to a branch. This triggers a cloud build run. 
And so it will build my jar and maybe place it somewhere, depending on what actions I have, and place it somewhere on GCP for me to reuse later. So those are the like the CI/CD pipelines on GCP. That's the building block for that. So the thing is, is that initially Cloud Build only supported Google source repositories. So that is again Google's version of Git hosted on GCP, but not many people were using that, right? So they are all using either GitHub or Bitbucket or GitLab or other version control providers. And connectivity wasn't really possible until very recently with Bitbucket. So they finally added support for Bitbucket. And that's pretty cool because I've seen a lot of customers in the past that had Bitbucket were interested in getting rid of their Jenkins and using CloudBelt, but just couldn't because they had to move all the, migrate all the repositories over to Google source control. So yeah, that unlocks that. So that is pretty cool. Another thing that wasn't possible until recently was to use a Google Secrets. So I was saying, you know, you're building an application that needs to have a password inside of it to connect to a GDBC, let's say a GDBC connection or, or whatever. You could have done it before, but as code in your application to pull that secret out. Now, this new feature as a build step where you can get secrets out of Google Secrets and pass them as environment variables to your application. Yeah, we're seeing now Cloud Build integrate more with third-party applications and other GCP services as well. So I'm expecting to see more in the future and see some better things. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Warner, it looks like there's a HoloLens update. Yeah, so this is just a small HoloLens update in terms of what it actually is, but I thought it's, it's cool to discuss in terms of, you know, bringing augmented reality to more things, right? And whether, whether this is an actual thing or this is the next Google Glass kind of thing. So this is a new edition of the HoloLens that's called the Industrial Edition. So the reason why it's a separate version is because it's a version of HoloLens that has to be manufactured under different standards because it has to comply with some regulations in terms of clean room or contamination of environments, right? So there are industries like the semiconductor or the pharmaceutical industries where all the devices that go into a particular room has to have very specific emission standards and they need to operate without impacting anything around them as well, right? It's, I mean, the energy sector as well. Potentially, you know, the device also has to go into hazardous environments. And so it's, it's manufactured in a different way as well, right? So this is a HoloLens that is the industrial edition that meets those ISO standards to be able to be clean room compatible and also what is known as intrinsic safety. I'm not a, an industrial engineer, so I don't know exactly what these standards have in their content, but the idea is that you can use them in this type of industrial scenarios where you can't just normally bring in, you know, any sort of device into these rooms. It has to be specifically rated for this type of capability, right? So Microsoft, for example, had in their in their press release, they mentioned Lockheed Martin was using it for manufacturing. The Imperial College in the UK was using it for lab scenarios. It said uh, Mercedes-Benz in their USA R&D department was using it as well for their own R&D and, and to use it for uh, their technicians as they are designing, prototyping, etc. And they also mentioned that they believe that they've gotten quite a bit of efficiency in terms of the work that their service technicians do as well using the HoloLens. 
So very interesting stuff. We'll see. Like I said, I think augmented reality now, the biggest barrier is do people really believe that there's there's a gain to get from it, right? And there's a return of investment into developing these augmented reality functionalities nowadays, right? Yeah, I did. And like you, I couldn't reflect on the impact of ISO certifications on the HoloLens, but I have been following HoloLens since I heard about it through Microsoft conferences years ago. And I, I think it's fantastic technology. I think it will be popular and it will bring great gains from everything to medicine in remote locations, for civilization, to industrial applications where you're collaborating virtually. And just think, you know, all the factory jobs that can't be done from home, at least the engineering and thought leadership and QA may Maybe HoloLens can enable I think that. it makes a lot of sense too to focus yeah. on this, like instead of focusing on the consumer market, right? The consumer yeah. market is, is thus, is there a consumer market for augmented reality? I don't know if there is. The devices are probably not super cheap to manufacture either, right? But in an industrial environment, I feel like it's an easier sell. Right. If you make the tooling so that you can develop the solutions to use uh-huh. it easily, then it makes a little bit more sense. Right. And it's easier to quantify as well to be able to invest more in the technology as well. Yeah, it's super interesting academic topic you're you're spawning here, Werner. I won't spend much time on it. Maybe we'll dedicate a show or a blog post. But like, if you think about consumer electronics and how they've influenced business electronics, basically killing off the BlackBerry and making the iPhone or now Android type interfaces very popular. But you know, if you think, and so one would think, well, consumer stuff leads business stuff. But at the same time, business applications I think will drive the hollow lens and then bring it into the consumer end, as you said. So very good point. They'll drive the cost down because it's unaffordable for many of us now. Very interesting topic. Pyrrhic, let's come back to you and let's talk a little bit about IoT device deployment. Yes. So this is interesting. This is uh, Google and uh, ARM working hand in hand because the Embed OS, which is the OS of choice for ARM IoT devices, now includes uh, pretty much uh, your G Cloud SDK. So it comes with all the libraries needed to do stuff with Google Cloud. So you can easily build your application on those operating systems to connect the PubSub, uh, writes data to BigQuery, and, and all that good stuff. And it actually does a lot of it automatically for you. So for example, your logs are forwarded automatically to Stackdriver logging. So yeah, that's uh, pretty cool. And I can see that Google took the first step on that market. And that means they will probably getting the first ARM IoT business going to their cloud rather than other clouds. So uh, quite an aggressive move there by Google, but well played. Yeah, well played. And staying with IoT, Warner, let's come back to you. Yes. So the update here in the IoT world of Azure is that the digital twins service has gone GA. So it's generally available now. If you follow our show, you will have heard us talk about digital twins before when it was released in preview. If not, I'll just give a quick rundown about what it is. So digital twins is a service to be able to build this idea, right, of the digital twins of a physical space in Azure, right? So it provides, it bundles a bunch of different things into this digital twins service solution, right? So Microsoft created and released to the public this uh, open modeling language. So you can create custom domain models of whatever it is that you're trying to simulate or not simulate to try to to mirror in digitally, right? Using the digital twins definition language. And then they also provide a live execution environment. So you can see how things are communicating with each other and how they all relate to each other through a graph 
representation. If you want to as well, there are also some third-party tools now that support this open API that Microsoft created for digital twins. And they even do like 3D modeling and representation, right? Based on the model that you create as well. And then it's also fully integrated with Microsoft's IoT stack, including the IoT hub, right? So you can easily onboard the IoT devices. You can authenticate them. You can decommission them, et cetera, et cetera. And last but not least is it has full support to output all the IoT data into either log analytics to just do some time series analysis or to do storage archiving in Azure storage. Or if you just want to do like full-blown analytics and reporting, you can also output them into Synapse as well, right? So Digital Twins is now GA. Interesting service. We'll see how it develops, but there's no denying, of course, that IoT is a is a hot topic and the easier it is for people to build IoT solutions, the better it is, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that wraps the Azure updates for the show. We will move over and wrap up the GCP updates with Piri talking about Google Cloud Code Sample. Yes, this is a new way for me to work, actually, because before when I had to write some code that runs on GCP, I would pretty much scrape GitHub, right? So I would open my web browser to GitHub and search uh, across all the repositories for some pretty good code examples. So obviously, the official Google Cloud repos came first and were very useful. But this is actually a very nice way of presenting all of that in a more convenient browsable page. So you just see code snippets. You don't have to see like the whole data flow job. You can just see the code snippet, for example, from reading out of PubSub, from, you know, maybe streaming into BigQuery, from doing this and that. So a very useful resource for anyone who's working with Google Cloud. I'm expecting this to be one of the bookmarks in my browser that I will be using the most to get back to these uh, samples. So yeah, definitely this is a very good move by Google. Good code examples of best practices of how to write your code. May that be Python, Java, or just Bash. So yeah, very good. I agree. And, you know, very good way to enable anyone who's learning different languages and using different languages, even on their home to learn. I mean, there's some debate over whether you should write it. And, you know, I know there's some developer hot topics around that. And I'm not well versed there, but I'm excited about this feature. This show, unfortunately, this time around, we don't have a cloud age productivity tip, but we would like to have some more to feature. So please do send your productivity tips, feedback, comments, suggestions. May they be topics or guests as well. If you'd like to be a guest of the show, you can email me or any from the team at datascapepodcast at gmail.com. That's all we had for time today, folks. Have a great day in the Datascape. Navigating the Datascape.